Well, thank you for that, Carla. As a story from Scripture, I love the ones that end with just sort of a, a funny sort of note, like, okay, well, this, this girl has been raised from the dead. Give her something to eat. Or uh, in the book of uh, Jonah, they clothed, uh, the one chapter ends with, and then he was vomited up onto the beach, which is something when I was a youth minister, I would tell the kids, that should be your life verse if anybody asks, what's your life verse? And then I was vomited up on the beach, and they looked at me, and I was like, well, life is like that sometimes. And you just feel like I'm here. I was vomited up onto the beach here, and that is my life. Um, I'm excited to get into that story that Carla just read, but this, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark since the beginning of the new year, and, and we're kind of looking at it chapters, the first six Sundays we're going to be on these chapters where Jesus is sort of moving throughout the Galilean countryside and sort of uh, partaking in life there, eating meals, uh, going as if he has sort of all the time in the world. And then the second half, we're going to focus on that forward journey from the cross during Lent. So, so that when, and, and this is pretty true in, in the Synoptic Gospels, that when it's confessed who Jesus is by Peter, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, all of the movement that Jesus seems to make from that point forward is towards Jerusalem, is towards the cross and towards the resurrection. So this Sunday is our last Sunday in sort of that first phase of the gospel, and next Sunday we move into that other part. But one of the things we talked about as we started sort of the new church year, which is in November, not in January, was that this year would be, be perhaps a chance where we could take the question, how am I doing, which is how I think we often think of the spiritual life, to how are we doing in a church-centered way. So like Lent or, or uh, this 40 days of preparation towards Easter is often a time where it becomes very clearly, how am I doing? Well, I'm giving up chocolate, and that's very, very hard. Well, I'm uh, choosing to watch less TV. Oh, well, I'm choosing to not be on social media. We all end up in these sort of uh, patterns of this is how I'm doing. And so what, what I have printed here, and I, I failed at this last time. We did a little bit something like this for Advent, and I didn't say I had them printed, and they were right here. Um, uh, I have not printed, and they're right here. I'm going to set them over in front of Jonathan there. But is, is this thing called the common rule, and it's, it's sort of advocating that perhaps for, for this 40 days of preparation for Easter, we can clear some space in our life, and instead of just taking up, like giving up something randomly, is actually sort of embrace sort of a pattern of life that draws us towards God, draws us towards neighbor, draws us towards the embrace of Easter, and then calls us to resist sort of the things in our lives. And so this is very practical. Um, if you did the one for Advent, there's simple things like one of the things that you might do during these 40 days is before you grab your phone in the morning, grab and read any passage of Scripture. Uh, one of the things that he has in here is perhaps maybe try to do four hours of TV a week. Now, for some of you, that's like, well, it's a, it's a good sports season to give up four hours, but, but to try and be disciplined about your, your, your consumption habits. Um, give up something for 24 hours of the type of things that are in here. And so that, these I'm going to put right here. There are, for the, for the vision impaired, is the big sheets. And for the non-vision impaired, you can grab one of the smaller ones. Um, but 
on Thursday nights, the Ash Wednesday is, is this Wednesday. It's on Valentine's Day, which if you have like a dark sense of what it means to be a Christian, that's like perfect for me. It's like, hey, you're going to die. Go give your loved ones some chocolates. Um, uh, but Valentine's Day, or, or it's just enough that St. Valentine was beheaded. There's just enough every year that it's like, here's, here's some candies that say I love you from the guy who got his head cut off as a martyr. Um, all that to say is that we'll, I'll be here from 7 to 7 administering ashes that day for those who want it. Um, so I'll be at the church from 7 to 7. Stop by the Thursday following this Wednesday, so not the 15th, but a week from the 15th, we're going to be meeting here and having a soup supper and sort of talking about how these disciplines are going and doing a little bit of a Bible study. So, so to move towards how am I doing to how are we doing, we have some sort of thick uh, practices, some things we can do with that during the season leading up towards Easter. So I invite you all to participate that in that, to grab one of those. Hopefully if you can make it to the Thursday things, that would be great as well. Um, that's, that's that. So that was a, a long sort of note on something else other than the, the scripture passage. Um, but this morning's scripture passage, I think, is one that gives us a good taste of where we're going. You know, we're going towards the cross in this next season. We're going towards the resurrection. And this story of Jarius uh, and, the, and the story of the hemorrhaging woman in between that and then the, the resolve of that story, I think really names the movements for us. My hope is that we can see that, that it names the sort of um, both the sickness, this healing, this bad news, and then this resurrection, that this passage can speak to us in a way that, that relates to our lives. And so I first want to go through it and just sort of um, talk about the ways in which this story is put together, and then I'll make some observations that maybe feed into that larger thing. But, but it's clear that this is a story of great darkness. I mean, it starts with a father's love for his daughter, and he goes and he asks Jesus to come and to heal her. It says, now, I've, I've had, it's, some translations say sick, but most of them capture now that she's almost dead, that his daughter is almost dead. Along the way, there's another woman who, who would have been, um, the, the Hebrew word for what she would have been is, is called an oozer, is somebody who sort of um, is leaking their body out and therefore is ritually unclean. They're cut off from their friends. They're cut off from worship at synagogue. They're cut off from their family. They're not really able to be touched or embraced or allowed in the world. I think it's always good or right to name that these aren't always just the happy endings we remember, but they're stories that exist in a world of darkness, in a world of frustrations to, to the redemption and reconciliation that God wants to bring. And so as we follow these characters, we'll see some of that healing, some of that light. Now, these two women are both unnamed, um, but they're both called daughter or little one by Jesus afterwards. And they're both invited into the sort of this movement of what Jesus is doing. There's an interesting sort of parallel, too, just on the larger scheme of the story, is that Jairus is the synagogue ruler and his daughter has his, her own room. Now, as a child of the 1980s, I always thought it was cool when kids had their own rooms. But in first century Israel, having your own room is very, very unique. 
You'd, you would be in a very wealthy family to have your own room. So Jairus is one who comes to Jesus sort of out of this privileged place. The woman who comes up to him on the road, it's, there's, some, there's some idea that she might have had some money because she paid doctors and now she has none. But she has no money. No sort of, sort of um, power either. All her relationships have been fractured through what, her disease. And what happens here is a very clear representation of what does it mean that the last shall be first and the first shall be last? which is a phrase we gather from the Gospels. And, and we always, I mean, sometimes when we think of that passage, and there's a group that maybe takes it this way, is that, so that's bad news for the first now, because they'll be last someday. But that's not actually the way that this functions sort of biblically. It's like, even when John the Baptist is saying that there'll be a great leveling, things will be level, and there will be a highway to the Lord, is it's actually sort of making things back to even. But here, the one who is first actually receives the healing last. And the one who is last receives their healing first. And so Jairus, this this wealthy man, comes to him and he says, My daughter is sick. Can you come and heal her? And Jesus says that he went with them. Now both of these people reach out in faith, which is the similarity between Jairus Jairus and and the woman in this passage. As they both come to Jesus in faith. And it says at this moment in Jesus' ministry, a large crowd is following him. I think many of these people are in to see a healing. They want to see what Jesus is going to do for this little girl who's on her deathbed. So a large crowd is following him, and he's going to Jairus' house. He's going there to heal her. But along the way, a woman, that the, one, the one we've talked about, who, who would have been an oozer, a woman who was sort of the abandonment of society in, in form. Um, one, one commentary I read this week compared it to back when the AIDS crisis was happening, a guy who had been uh, living with AIDS, his parents made him live in the garage because at the time, you know, there was this, this contagious nature that people thought of with it, and so they just had no way of dealing with him other than putting him out there. And you can imagine how hard and how dark and difficult that was for that son. And so when we think about this woman, that's her life. She's been put out to the sides. Now, it says that she went to many doctors and they couldn't help her. We, if you ever read about like what Civil War doctors did to help people, this is 1600s, it's, it's not good. Like, they didn't know a lot about medicine. They didn't know a lot about how to heal a person. This is around the start of the modern era. Can you imagine what it's like in the first century to go to lots of doctors to try and get healing and to spend all your money? Now, some of the, the she's bleeding from her, her private area, and so you would imagine that most of these doctors are male, and most of these doctors don't have much of a clue about what to do about that. Culturally, some of the cures that we know about that you can read from the first century are drinking weird potions mixed up, mixed up of things that are, are just gross. I don't really like to do shock value in my sermons. If you want to know what they are after, you can ask me. But they're just disgusting things that they would have you drink or do to get healed from this bleeding on the inside. So not only is she sort of 
ostracized from her family, from her community, unable to participate in, in religious life, considered ritually unclean. She's gone to doctors who haven't been good to her. Doctors that most likely in this scenario would have taken her money but offered her no hope and no cure. But she has faith. She says to herself, and, and this interior dialogue for, for women is, is, is very sort of unique. This first century world, you wouldn't see a lot of this. But that the gospel writer preserves her sort of interior dialogue is just an amazing gift for us. Because she says to herself that if she can get near him and just touch his clothes, she'll be healed. Now, there's, there's, there's this righteousness in this woman because it, even touching his clothes would make Jesus sort of ritually unclean in this world, first century world, but she doesn't want to touch him. She knows her burden. She knows where she is in the world. She just wants to touch the edge of his garment. And so she goes out and she, she, Jesus passes by and it's in this crowd and she touches him and she feels that she's healed immediately. This causes Jesus to realize that power has gone out of him, that something has happened. And what he does is he stops and he says, who touched me? Now, I, I go to a fair amount of, a couple sporting events every year. The one that I go to on Memorial Day is the Indy 500, and there's 300,000 people there which is a lot of people. I mean, the biggest football stadiums are less than 100,000 people. There's like 300,000 people here at this race. And if me and my dad were walking through the crowd and I said to my dad, Dad, who just touched me? Who just bumped into me? My dad's reaction would be probably pretty similar to disciples, where it's like, you're surrounded by all these people and you want us to say, to be able to say, who touched you? kind of blow Jesus off at this moment as he's surrounded by this crowd and, and you can imagine they're all bumping into each other and so what happens is, is, is Jesus begins to set out to look for her. He begins to set out to find the person who touched him. There's a gospel truth here about how Jesus seeks out those who want healing from him, who finds them. It sort of uh, goes with him. There's also a concern that this, this woman maybe has a little bit of a super, superstitious understanding of what happened here. If I can just touch his clothes, I'll be healing. But Jesus doesn't just want to heal people. He wants to sort of claim them for, for relationship and movement into new righteousness. And so he seeks this person out. Now, given all that, it, he was still asked by Jairus, to go heal his little girl who's dying. But Jesus is taking the time along this journey to seek out who touched him in the middle of a large crowd. The woman begins to feel sort of guilty, you would imagine. She comes out and it says she comes to tell Jesus the whole truth of what happened. She comes out with fear and trembling and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Jesus names this one who is an outcast, who almost just touches him without his permission. And he says to her daughter, 
Not just like, this isn't just like um, the cheap way that we would say like, oh, bless your heart, daughter. This Like he really means in, in, in the Greek to name her as a family member. He says that your faith has healed you. And that word healed also is often translated saved. Your healing and your saving sort of go hand in hand in this passage. You're not just healed from what afflicts you, but you're saved and transferred into sort of a new realm. You're transferred into sort of a new relationship. And this, this blessing he sends her with, go in, faith, uh, go in peace, is a very equalizing move. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. This movement is about that sort of relational aspect of what Jesus is doing here. But it's often the case in the world that that the moment of life for somebody is also the moment of death for someone else. Daughter, go, your faith has healed you. Is followed almost immediately with this incredibly heartbreaking turn, which is, Jarius, your daughter has died. Isn't this the way that the world functions so often? Is that the moment of life we're also somehow seeing a tinge of death too? The moment of life swelling up in the world, there's this, there's this bit of darkness that always wants to creep in. And so as this great healing has happened for this woman, the people come from Jarius' house and they say that your daughter is dead. Quit bothering the teacher. What Jesus does is, is he continues along the way to this house. Now at the moment, Jesus has shown miraculous power and healings, but he hasn't raised anybody from the dead yet. And so they go along this path, and what he says to, to, to Jairus is, don't be afraid, keep faith. I want to say more about that at the end of the sermon, but, but that's one of those things is, do you ever have people say that to you and you just want to punch them? Um, at the moment of some hardship or some sort of difficult time, somebody just shares with you some cheap Bible verse and goes on their way, not dealing with your reality very well. Like, it's just like, have faith, man. God will be with you. God will bless you. And then you just move. Does that only happen to me? Am I that mean of a, okay, I was like, am I that mean of a person that I'm the only person who gets, uh, I'm like, that just seems so cheap. Um, but even Jesus, at the moment that he mentions this, continues to go to the house where the daughter is. I think that's a lesson for us is that as we feel the need, there's truth in that statement, and there's a reason why we, we sort of retreat to it. But if we're going to offer it up, we should go to the house with them. We shouldn't just stay away and go on our separate ways. Well, you know, this conversation got really awkward fast, and I'm not equipped to deal with your suffering right now, so have faith, I'm going to go ski. Um, That, like, if we're at that moment of offering that advice, we should probably walk with the person into their suffering. And so Jesus walks with them to this house, and that's not the end of the story, as we know. He walks to the house, and the professional sort of mourners, which they have at this time, have gathered to sort of begin wailing and making, um, making their, doing their job, essentially, that this girl has died, and Jairus being one who can sort of afford professional mourners. Jesus says, well, this little girl isn't dead, she's asleep. And in a, another, like, dark passage is they all laugh at him. I mean, they all laugh 
at, at what Jesus has said. No, nobody even has hope. I mean, this is a jaded lot um, that this could be true. And, and obviously that they know death. Their job is going to the places of dead people and mourning. So, so maybe they had some right, but they laugh at Jesus' hope and faith in this situation. And so what Jesus does is he sends everybody out, except for the sort of the big three disciples, and keeps the family in there with him. And he goes up to the little girl and says, and says to her, little girl, arise. And at that moment, she gets up. That moment, she's, she's brought back to life. And at that moment, joy begins to fill the place again. And Jesus sort of sends her out to go get something to eat. He's restored this broken one and this broken relationship. Jesus has somehow uh, miraculously conquered death here. And, and the thing about Jesus' healings, if you were reading other first century healing stories, is there's no magic formula. There's no secret thing he does. He literally takes people by the hand and says, little girl, arise. You would find stories of miraculously healings in the first century, but they all contain some potions, some magic incantation, some, something like that. But Jesus just commands, little girl, arise. In the previous scene last week, he said to the storm, be still, and it stopped. Jesus walks with this power to sort of just confront those things to bring this girl back to life, to restore her to her family. There's a, there's a connection here that, that you can, maybe you can find something with, is that the woman who, with the bleeding has been bleeding for 12 years, who's healed, and this little girl who Jesus restores to her family is also 12 years of age. Normally in the Gospels where they put two numbers like that close together, it's supposed to bring something to us. Uh, I think the similarities of their, their abandonment is probably there. And both these people are ritually unclean, so Jesus sort of restores both of them to life. But the last things I wanted to say is to sort of go back uh, to that moment that I think, I think defines a lot of our life, which is your faith has healed you, your daughter is dead, um, your faith has healed you. Your daughter is dead. Little girl, arise. And um, uh, those sort of three, those three words, sorry. Uh, your faith has saved you. Your daughter has died. Oh, and then the phrase, uh, don't be afraid, but keep trusting. Have faith. Keep believing. What I want to say about this is that as I sat with this, just this phrase all week, I mean, a lot of the sermon came out of just various study, but the phrase I sat with all week was this, um, your faith has healed you. Death has come. Keep believing. Arise. And for me, it kept naming this, this um, sort of way of life, this sort of being in the world of, of that we come to Jesus and we receive healing for our lives. We touch his cloak and he heals us. And it's not long in the world before death comes. Many people, when they, you hear this story often if you're a pastor, is I became a Christian and then something bad happened and I lost my faith. The truth is named here in this story is that your faith has healed you and almost instantaneously somebody comes to Jesus with the news that somebody's daughter has died. 
a relationship is broken. Jesus doesn't say a lot in this story, but he says to Jairus at that moment of heartbreak to keep faith, to keep believing. I think where we actually live as Christians today is at that moment. We still believe in miraculous healings and that God can raise people from the dead, but most of our lives are lived in some scene, some sense of healing, some sense of hurt and brokenness, and hearing the news from Jesus that we are to keep faith, to keep trusting. That word arise that he uses when he calls forth the little girl is the same one that, that, that the first hearers of Mark would associate with the resurrection. And so when Jesus is saying that, though, she's asleep, is that when we worship Jesus, Jesus, we say that death is like sleep to him. Death is as sleep to Jesus. And what we await to hear in our lives as we go towards these things is also little girl, little boy, old man, son, arise, partake in my resurrection. That's the movement of sort of faith that's caught up in this story. And so there's this, um, there's this second century writer who brought the fire with this keep faith passage that I want to read and we'll end. But it, but it puts more to this faith passage. And, and this is Apparatus. He says, When the chief of the synagogue asked him about his daughter, Jesus said to him, Only firmly believe and your daughter shall live. He believed, and so his daughter lived and arose. And he says, So let us draw near then, my beloved, to faith, since its powers are so many. For faith raised up Enoch to the heavens and conquered the flood. Faith causes the barren to sprout forth. It delivers from the sword. It raises up from the pit. It enriches the poor. It releases the captives. It delivers the persecuted. It brings down fire. It divides the sea. It cleaves the rock and gives thirsty water to drink. It satisfies the hungry. It raises the dead and brings them up from Sheol. It stills the billows. It heals the sick. It conquers hosts. It overthrows walls. It stops mouths of lions and quenches the flame of fire. It humiliates the proud and brings forth the humble to honor. All these mighty works are brought by faith. Now this is faith. When one believes in God, the Lord of all, who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, he made Adam in his image, he gave the law to Moses, he sent his spirit upon the prophets. More, however, he sent his Christ, his son, into the world, that we should believe in the resurrection of the dead and shall also trust in the work of our baptism. This is the faith of the church of God. One of the things we say about why we're defiance church is that we believe that God defies death in Jesus Christ. This is the faith of the church. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Now this morning...